Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we look at the first commitment from our partnership series and ask ourselves who is at the center of our commitment. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. to meet you. Uh, My name is Tim, and I'm glad you're with us again this morning. Uh, I hope if it's your very first time with us, you discover that the people next to you are some of the most loving, good people you will ever meet. Um, That's been my experience, and so I hope you discover that too. Uh, We are uh, West Michiganders, many of us, most of us probably, and so many of us are shy. Um, But uh, if you get past the shyness, I hope you discover that people are, are really good here. And uh, and uh, I would love to meet you at some point, so uh, feel free to stick around afterwards. Um, I've got a commitment at 1 o'clock today, but other than that, <laughs> for those who are new, I'm a Lions fan uh, and unapologetic about it this year. Anyway, uh, we are going to be in John, if you have a Bible, John chapter 3, New Testament book of John chapter 3. Who's John? Uh, John is one of the disciples of Jesus, and uh, he is arguably the closest of Jesus' disciples. Uh, when the guards come to arrest Jesus on the night he is crucified, the night he's betrayed and then later crucified, uh, all the other disciples scatter, but John stays. Uh, John follows Jesus to the cross. He's the only disciple who does that. He's arguably the closest. Jesus refers to him as the beloved disciple. Uh, John, when he gets older, so years after following Jesus, when he gets to the, edge, the end of his life, he realizes uh, I need to pass these stories down, these encounters I had with Jesus. Uh, the world needs to know these stories. And so he sits down to write a biography on the life of Jesus that we refer to as the Gospel of John. Uh, so that's, that's who John is. Uh, now, John, um, John is specific in kind of the stories he chooses to start with. As you'll see, we're going to look at John chapter 3. He's really specific in making sure that he front loads his gospel so that if you don't get to the end of it, you know exactly who Jesus is. The other disciples wait for a big reveal. Uh, the other gospels wait for like the big reveal. Um, so they have this like, oh, Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah. That happens in the middle of the gospels. John starts there. John's got uh, an agenda. He wants us to know who Jesus is. Uh, now, um, if, if you missed last week or if this is your first week here with us, uh, let me catch you up a little bit. Uh, we began last week a six-week series on, uh, on really asking the question, why does church matter? Why does this matter? And uh, we last week looked at a subject that I've been obsessed with now for at least 15 years. Um, and uh, it's a subject of uh, great revolutions or great reformations and change. Uh, what uh, many anthropologists and theologians have discovered is that uh, our world kind of goes through major paradigm shifts every 500 years or so. And uh, they come pretty regularly, almost like clockwork. Every 500 years or so, uh, we have a major shift. Now, these major shifts uh, tend to have some kind of a new technology that's on the scene. And this new technology is a disruptor. And so uh, 500 years ago, it was the printing press. All of a sudden, now we can, uh, you don't have to trust my word from a stage in a church. You can look in your Bible yourself. And that changes culture. Um, Now we have all kinds of new technology Uh, the internet, uh, AI, uh, all all kinds of brand new technology. So we have new technology. And 
Uh, every 500 years, there's, there tends to be some kind of a, a massive political shift. So people begin asking new questions of their government and new questions about politics and how do we do life together. And uh, so if you're wondering, like, why, like, it feels like politics has gotten really weird lately. Yeah, this happens pretty regularly every 500 years. We're not the first. We won't be the last, um, most likely. Uh, and then uh, along with that, there is uh, every 500 years or so, uh, as part of it, and most relevant to our discussion, our religion and faith undergoes a pretty massive shift. Uh, the, the lady who I was introduced, this, the, who introduced me to this, uh, she refers to these moments as great reformations. And she says in the midst of a great reformation, there's always what she refers to as like a great rummage sale. It's like the church will take all of the things we do, the traditions, the, uh, the, the polity of the church, the way we do denominations, uh, all, everything, our, our, our belief systems, our faith, all of it, and we'll take it and we'll bring it to the curb. And now we have to make some decisions. Which things are essential that we will never sell off because they're essential to who we are? And which things have crept into our tradition that maybe either were relevant for a time but are no longer relevant or somehow they got into our, our, like the Christian world and they're not actually, they don't look anything like Jesus and we should rummage those off. We should confess that that is nothing like Jesus and we should get rid of it. Uh, we should always be doing that, but she argues uh, that every 500 years, there's some kind of a crisis that comes that forces us to actually look honestly at ourselves. Uh, and so if you think about denominations, denominations, Protestant denominations really didn't start until about 500 years ago. And now it's just kind of assumed. This is how we organize the church body and these denominations. And, and now there's a group of people who are asking the question is, are denominations, are they the next thing? Are they the right thing? And, and uh, lots of thoughts and lots of opinions and a lot of wrestling around that. But essentially the question you have to ask is what is essential that we must never sell off and what is, uh, so what is timeless? What is, what is essential, especially what is uh, the core of what we believe to be Christian? And which are the things that just aren't helpful or maybe even hurtful? Uh, a metaphor that, an another metaphor that uh, you've probably used at times is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, we, uh, in order to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, you have to confess that there are things that have gotten in the bathwater that are dirty. Uh, that, are, that are just wrong. And uh, how do we separate those things from what is worth holding on to that we would never want to throw out? And so uh, the two questions, so we set that up last week. And then uh, the two questions we really want to use to guide our series is first, why does church matter? And then second, in this great rummage sale, what is absolutely essential? Because if it's essential, it's not only should we never sell it off, but we should probably double down on it and we should do more teaching on it. We should commit ourselves stronger to it. So what is, what is, why does the church matter? And then what is essential? Uh, last week we talked about church and uh, I think one of the things in this great rummage sale that we should, we should address is for a long time now, church has been assumed uh, that church is a building that we go to where we're members of. We'll say things like, are you going to church? Okay, so church is a building, it's a destination, it's a place that we go to where we're members of. But if you look at the scriptures, what you discover is that church is never, first and foremost, a building or a place that you go to where you're a member of. That's Costco or the gym, right? That's a building or a thing that you're a member of. 
But the church is always supposed to be a community of people that you partner with in mission for God. Now, buildings are helpful for that partnering, absolutely, but you don't need a building to partner with other Christians in mission for God. Uh, you can do that in, um, right now, there's a revolution of underground churches, and they're happening in people's basements and living rooms. And so uh, we think that the partnership of the body is something we need to reclaim. Uh, now, we use that word partnership intentionally. It's the word that's used throughout the, the New Testament, um, but also because to partner together means we need each other in this. Uh, it's, I think there's, we've had a season where well, churches have risen and fallen on the, the pastor, and, uh, and we've forgotten that, actually, no, the, Jesus refers to the church as his, or Paul refers to the church as the body of Jesus, and every piece of the body is necessary for the body um, so that we can live out the mission that Jesus gave us. Now, what's that mission? Uh, how, do, how, do we live, how do we live it out? That's what I want to wrestle with over the next few weeks. Now, we have, uh, as a church, we have four partnership commitments that we hold. If we were to clear all the other things out in the rummage sale, what are the four things that we should absolutely not get rid of? Uh, they're on an orange card in, in the seat back in front of you if you want to look at all four. We're just going to walk through the first one this morning, and then we'll kind of take them in order as we go. Um, but actually, uh, twice a year, we, do a, a, we were doing a class on partnership, and we were walking through these four commitments and why they matter. And then at the end of the class, uh, for those who wanted to become partners with the church, again, old language is membership, but we would really think about partnership, uh, there was an opportunity to fill out the card. We'll give you the same opportunity. Um, we also fully are aware that not all of you are ready to take that or want to take that step with us, and that's okay. We'll make sure it's not awkward when we get there. <laughs> but uh, we'll walk through kind of, if, you, if you're interested, uh, we'll give you the opportunity at the end, or you can do this really anytime. Um, but four commitments that we believe are bedrock to who we are as a community. Now, the first commitment of those four, the one we're looking at this morning, is the most essential. If this first one's not in place, the rest of them actually don't really matter at all. But the first commitment here is absolutely bedrock, essential to what we believe uh, the church is supposed to be. And if you read the first commitment, uh, it is, I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead to be my savior and confess my commitment to his lordship over my life. So savior is he did something for me. Lordship is I'll follow that. Uh, and that's what we believe to be bedrock, to which most of you are not surprised, I hope. I mean, we are a Christian church, um, and so it shouldn't be too surprising. Um, but uh, my hope this morning is to maybe think together about why that commitment matters. Not just what the commitment is, but why would this one be so important that we want to be really, really clear on it? Why does it matter? Which brings me to John. If you had to find a summary of Jesus, and if you actually had to summarize the entire Bible in like a single line, uh, John's going to do that for us. Um, John's really intentional about what stories he starts his gospel with. And one of those particular stories, there's a famous line. It's maybe the most famous line in the entire Bible. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Would you agree that if you had to do a one-line summary of the entire Bible and you had to pick any line in the Bible, that's a pretty good one, right? There's other good ones, but that one's like, that's a really good one-line summary. Uh, and my hunch is if you grew up in the church, you know this verse, maybe have it memorized, maybe even have it memorized in the King James, begotten, right? That's the only time you've ever used the word begotten, but like you use it in this thing. Um, and so 
if you grew up in the church, you know this, but my hunch is even if you didn't grow up in the church, these words are somewhat familiar to you. In fact, my guess is some of you maybe even have heard of this man. Uh, we're going to divide our crowd here. We'll see who's... Uh, how many of you remember uh, his name is Roland Stewart, a.k.a. Rockin' Roland, <laughs> a.k.a. The Rainbow Man? Anybody remember this guy? Again, we're going to divide our room by age right now. Um, so it, if you watch sports in the 70s and 80s, there was a good chance you saw images of the Rainbow Man. Uh, he's known... He's most famous for holding up signs that say 316 on them. He's kind of become a pop cultural thing. Uh, he, the Simpsons did a little spoof on him. Other shows have spoofed on this guy. Uh, but most of the 70s and 80s, you could watch a sports game and you would see him uh, holding a sign that said 316, which was a reference to John 316. He wanted the whole world to know John 316. So he stood in the end zone. So every time uh, a major play happened, you saw 316. Pretty cool, right? A couple of years ago, I was really curious. Like, whatever happened to the Rainbow Man? Uh, and so I did a, a probably too deep of a dive on whatever happened to the Rainbow Man. Do you know what happened to the Rainbow You know, where is he now? The answer? Prison. <laughs> I know. Didn't see that coming. That wasn't on the bingo card. Uh, <laughs> Not only is he in prison, he is serving three consecutive life sentences in prison. Apparently, in the late 80s, he attacked a few high-profile venues, and uh, he uh, lit off stink bombs in the venues because he said, I can't even say it with a straight face, he said, yes, we're lighting stink bombs because God thinks this world stinks. But that's actually not why he's in prison serving three consecutive life sentences. The reason he's in prison is because he broke into a hotel. He put 316 wallpaper up over the windows, took three people hostage, and tried to shoot down airplanes flying out of LAX. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, you know, other than that, totally normal guy. <laughs> this weird stuff, weird stuff. And I, I start there because I think if we're going to have a conversation about babies and bathwater, like what's essential, what's not essential, it's important for us Christians to remember that, uh, well, let's come at it this way. Let's imagine you've, you didn't grow up in the church. This is all brand new to you. And the only experience you have of Jesus is you saw a football game, saw the guy with a 316 poster and said, I got to look up this guy. And then you read that story. And then somebody says to you, do you want to be a Christian too? What's, what's your response? Yeah, no, right? Like, no. Like, if the only honest response actually would be no. Uh, actually, I think somewhere along the way, again, an extreme example, I get it, but I think somewhere along the way, uh, many people have walked away from Jesus, not because of Jesus, but because somehow Jesus got connected to something that looked very unchrist like very un-Jesus-like. How do you take a, a verse, hold up a sign your entire adult life that says, for God so loved the world, and then light stink bombs that say, God thinks this world stinks. You see the cognitive dissonance in that. Uh, I think some people walk away from Jesus not because of who Jesus is and not because of what Jesus taught uh, or how Jesus loved, but because, well, 
the New Testament says that we are ambassadors of Christ. So we're like his PR team. And if we are just really honest, I hope this isn't true for us. I don't, I don't think this is true for us. But if we're really honest, sometimes Christians have been the, the PR team of Jesus, have been the meanest people, the hardest people to have a conversation with. I have a vivid memory of uh, sitting at a restaurant downtown or down the street, actually, with this businessman, uh, not a Christian, and we were talking about faith and church and business stuff. And at one point, he, he pointed and he said, you know why I'm not a Christian? And he pointed to somebody else in the, the room and he said, you, you know what that guy's reputation is? And I said, no, I don't. And he says, his reputation, he's an elder in his church and his reputation is he will pray with you on Sunday and then he'll pray on you on Monday. That's a bad reputation, how do we get really honest about this? Uh, how do we separate who is Jesus from all of the noise? Now, John 3.16 is a really good place to start. Um, but I, uh, as you know, the Bible is not a series of divine tweets, right? It's not just a bunch of one-liners. Um, hopefully you know this, that if you were to pick up the Bible, it's, it's mostly stories of people's interactions with God throughout history. It's not just one-line verses or self-help quotes or memes uh, the Bible's stories. So to, in order to understand what the power of this particular verse is, it's really helpful to understand the full story of what's going around, on around the verse. Uh, so let's do that. Uh, the story starts in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Okay, pause here. Uh, I, I say this a lot, but I think it's worth repeating. Anytime you're reading your Bible and you are given details, your question should be, why does the author need me to know this? Right? You've you got to like, trust that the author's got an intention behind every detail. They're working off limited space, uh, and so why does this author, why does John want me to know this, the details he gives me here? Let's walk through the details. Uh, first, we're told his name. We're told this guy's name. He's coming to Jesus and we're given his name. His name is Nicodemus. Now, in our culture, names uh, are how we identify people, right? You say, Tim, I say, hey, um, like that's how I'm identified. But I don't often think about my meaning of my name a whole lot. That's not why we name, most people don't name their kids because the name carries some specific meaning to it. It's more how we want a name that sounds cute when they're little and they can grow into when they're older. And so we find a name. Um, but names are how we identify. In the biblical world, your name was not just your identification, it was your identity. The Hebrew word for name carries within it the same word for etching, they believed it was your legacy given to you, given to your parents at the age of eight days old. This was who you would become. Now, we don't think about names like this. That's okay. This is our culture. That was their culture. But it's important to know that about their culture. Uh, remember how hard it was to pick your kids' names out? It's hard for us, at least. Uh, we just got a puppy and even picking. Now, the bar is much lower on picking out a dog's name. Um, we, got a, we got a Bernadoodle. Anybody got Bernadoodles here? I, oh, you guys, that's right, yeah, know that. Yes, uh, felt, I never thought I'd be part of the Doodle family, but here we go. Um, uh, yeah, we got a Bernadoodle, cute little guy. And I remember uh, we went to go pick him up, and on the car ride back, we were like running through the names, right? Uh, what are we gonna call this thing? 
And uh, my son's front runner was the name Rafi. He really liked Rafi. Um, his, his, he wanted a Y at the end of it for some reason. He wanted the Y, so Rafi. And then my daughters, uh, they were torn, but they both liked the same two names, Bacon and Pickles. <laughs> and then my front runner was Merle Haggard. I really wanted a dog named Merle. Um, but uh, my wife, her favorite name uh, was Phil Collins. And so we got a puppy named Phil Collins, and uh, it's <laughs> by the way, uh, you want to create a weird moment with your neighbors, yell out your backslider, Phil Collins, Phil Collins. <laughs> Didn't think that went through. Uh, some interesting conversations with my neighbors yelling Phil Collins out the backslider. <laughs> my point is, <laughs> do I have a point? I have a point. Uh, names are how we identify. I say Phil Collins, and uh, the dog's not thinking, I'm the greatest drummer of all time. <laughs> He's coming running, hopefully, uh, at some point, um, because that's how he identifies. That's how we identify him. That's how we think of names. Biblically, names were your legacy. You, when you, actually, there's a whole sermon we were going to do, and then we cut it for time. But uh, uh, through the book of Genesis, if you just look at the names of the people in Genesis, you can tell a lot about the story just in looking at their names. That's uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, for instance, Moses, Moshe. Uh, anybody know what it means in Hebrew? To draw out. So they draw him out. This is how he gets his name as a kid. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter draws him out. And what's his legacy in life? He'll be the guy that draws the Israelites out of slavery. Um, Jesus. Anybody know the mean, meaning of the name Jesus? Who said that? Nailed it. Jesus comes from two words, Yahshua. Yah as in God, Yahweh, and Shua means Savior, saves. So Jesus means God saves. So what's Jesus' legacy? God in the human form is going to save us. I would... I'd give you a fist bump. Um, uh, sometimes you can t figure out a story, by the way, based on the name. Sometimes there's clues in the names. Uh, so every kid's favorite story, or many kids' favorite story, is the story of Samson and Delilah. You know the story? Strong guy. Uh, Samson, his name comes from the word Shemesh, which means sun or light. And he guesses at what Delilah means. Darkness. Bingo. Delilah means of the night or darkness. So you're reading your story, and all of a sudden you read about the man of the light, Shemesh, Samson, meets woman of the night, darkness, and all of a sudden you know, oh, these two are not going to go well together. This is, not how, this is not the way the story's supposed to go. So names mean a lot. Now, I say all that because Nicodemus is a name. We should be asking the question, what does Nicodemus mean? Uh, Nicodemus comes from two words, Smash together. The first word is Nikos, which is where we get the word uh, Nike. Uh, now, before Nike was a shoe brand, Nike was the goddess of victory. So Nikos, victory. And then Demos, any guesses? Democracy, democratic, people, people. So Nicodemus means the, uh, the people's victory. The people's victory. So immediately we meet Nicodemus, and you're like, okay, you're the people's victory. 
Now, we assume that this name was given to him by his peers, not by his parents, most likely because we read that he's also a Pharisee, which is a Jewish religious sect, not just a Jewish religious sect, the Jewish religious sect. They are the ones who who cared about the Bible more than anyone. And Nicodemus is a Greek name. So somebody else probably gave him that title or his parents maybe had some connection and they wanted him to be an upstanding Greek. We don't know. But we do know he's a Pharisee, which means he loves his Bible. He wants to go to all the Bible studies. That's, that's Nicodemus. Uh, then we're also told that he is a member of the, of the Jewish ruling class uh, council. Again, huge detail, easy to fly over. Uh, in America, we would call the American ruling council the Supreme Court. He sits on the Supreme Court. Is, uh, in the biblical world, it's known as the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. Uh, it's made up of 71 of the wisest, smartest, most revered individuals of the culture. They make all the rules. So run through the... Run through the um, the resume of Nicodemus, you got the people's victory, who's the Bible scholar who is sitting on the Supreme Court. We also know that he's really, really wealthy. We know this from a, a series of writings known as the Talmud. The Talmud suggests that this uh, Nicodemus who sat on the ruling council was one of the three wealthiest men in all of Israel. Not only was he one of the three wealthiest men, the Talmud says that the three men's wealth together could sustain the entire nation. You get a feel for Nicodemus. He's like one part lawyer, one part pastor, one part Jeff Bezos, right? Like he's, he's, he's all of it. He's, he's the people's victim. He's like Muhammad Ali. He's the people's champion. He floats like a butterfly, stings like a bee. He's a lives, works in the Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee. There you go. That's my rhyme for you. Uh, but he's also sneaking around in the middle of the night. What's that about? Why is he coming to Jesus in the middle of the night? I'm proud of that. That was good. Uh, why is he coming in the middle of the night? Uh, why is the, the people's victory sneaking around? What is going on? Apparently, because you read through, the, he's got a question. Apparently, though he's climbed the ladder all the way to the top, He's not happy. He's not content. He's done it all. He's achieved it all. He's got people's, he's the people's victory. They love him. He's in the Pharisees. God apparently loves him. He's got an impressive resume. He's done it all, but he's, there are the crises in life where it's like, my life has fallen apart and I need help. And then there are the crises of success, the crises of I did everything I was supposed to do and I've climbed every ladder I was supposed to climb and it's not working for me. And so he sneaks to Jesus and Jesus anticipates that there is a question behind his question. Uh, Verse two, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God weren't with him. So it's a statement, but it's also a question. Who are you? Why are you the way you are, and why am I not the way you are? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Stop there again. By the way, that phrase, born again, you heard that before? Are you a born again Christian? You've heard that language? This is the only time in the Bible that phrase shows up. 
So everything that we've heard about being a born-again Christian, all of it comes from this one story. Uh, now notice Nicodemus, uh, notice, notice what he says. He says, Jesus, you are the teacher. You have been sent from God. Would you agree? It seems at this point Nicodemus knows who Jesus is. In fact, John's pretty clear that Jesus' own disciples don't even know who he is yet, but Nicodemus apparently knows who he is. That's what he says. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, uh, notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, once you believe, then you are born again. That's how we talk about it. Jesus says, now that you believe, you must be born again. Subtle, but really important difference. Apparently, Nicodemus believes all the right things here, but it hasn't changed anything here. Why am I not content? We've got to talk about this. Uh, Verse four, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mom's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus responds with two metaphors, a metaphor about birth and a metaphor about wind, to which Nicodemus asks his question. How can this be, Nicodemus asked? How can this be? Uh, Now, um, maybe Nicodemus is uh, really dumb and not good at metaphors. Okay, like, oh, look, can I climb in the womb again? Like, seriously, it's a metaphor. Like, maybe, maybe, but we know he's not, right? We know based on his reputation, based on what he's achieved, we know he's not dumb. In which case, maybe he's really sincere. Maybe he's actually got a question for Jesus. Jesus, how can this be? How do we do this? Again, it's not because his life has fallen apart that he's got a crisis. It's because he's climbed all the way to the top and yet something in him is still unsettled. He's still not content. I wonder, in this great rummage sale, if one of the things we need to recapture in the church, and I do mean recapture because I think by and large, as a Christian culture, we've lost this, is our willingness to sit with people in their questions. You notice how Jesus does that? He sits with him, he, he nudges him forward, but he, he allows him to ask the questions. And then he anticipates the question behind the question. So it's not just, I'll give you this quick answer, but I understand you're, going, you're seeking something more. I wonder how many people walk around our world asking really sincere and really serious questions. Uh, and they're really sincere and they're really serious. Uh, and often they're questions, sometimes they're questions of crisis, right? My life fell apart, is there any hope? But a lot of times it's questions of, I was told that if I worked hard, I'd have a good job, and then I got the good job, but I'm not happy. I was told that if I got the good job, I'd make more money, and then I could invest that money into things that are fun, and I did that, but I'm still not happy. There's like this hollowness. All of these questions, they they come bubbling to the surface. Um, I wonder how many people in our world would ask us the questions, but as Christians, myself included in this, we have not always done great with people's questions. Stop doubting. Don't doubt. Right? Like that has been, uh, I've seen this in my life a bit. Um, I have a moment that I used to be, I used to like dread this moment in a conversation. Now I kind of look forward to it. But 
There's always a moment when I meet somebody new and we're talking and kind of like, I don't know, small talk, where they'll eventually ask, like, what do you do for a job? And I'll say, I'm a pastor. And uh, early on, I dreaded that moment because almost everyone's response is, I'm sorry about the word I said, or I didn't mean that joke. Um, I mean, it's always a little awkward. It's still a little awkward, but I, I actually have come to like, actually appreciate the moment because once you get past the awkwardness, and I, I do feel bad about that moment, but once you get past the awkwardness, almost every one of the conversations I've gotten into has gone something, something along the lines of, hey, I've, I've actually got a question. I'm wondering if maybe you, you have an insight into you. And then it'll be some question about life or love or meaning or suffering or purpose. It's like the question's in them and they're just waiting for the question to come out of them. I wonder how many people in our world are holding onto really deep questions, the kind of questions that AI can't answer, right? The kind of questions that social media gurus can't answer, the kind of, the kind of questions that self-help books haven't been helpful in. They, they've done all those things. They've done all the things and it's still not working and it raises all of these questions. And as a church culture, I wonder how often we have gotten uncomfortable with questions because we have, seen question, we have seen questions as challenge. We have seen questions, we've gotten defensive. Somehow along the line, and I think this one is up for grabs in this rummage sale, we have come to believe that the opposite of faith is what? Doubt. Yeah, that's the, that's, that's the, we've come to believe that the opposite of faith is doubt. You either have faith or you're a doubter. You either believe or you doubt. However, throughout the Bible, the opposite of faith is never doubt. The opposite of faith is sight. It's certainty. So the person who says, I know that I know that I know, is actually has more, they're the, actually the opposite of faith. The person who doubts, Jesus says, read the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus' own disciples who've seen him resurrected from the grave have doubts. And he says, okay, go into the world to make disciples. Like, I think it's a big deal for, for our generation to solve. If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then somebody's questions, if they're honest and sincere, if they're truly trying to learn and grow, should bring us closer to truth, which should bring us closer to Jesus. Questions are, if that's the case, then questions should not be dismissed or we should not like, freak out about somebody asking questions. We should encourage it. The, the danger is when somebody stops asking questions. The danger is when they just kind of give in to, like all of us, that's true. But if questions lead us to truth and if Jesus is truth, then questions should lead us closer to, to Jesus. As a church, I think this is something we take really seriously. Um, about 40 years ago or so, Christians recognized, church recognized we had a problem. Here's the problem. What we saw was we looked around the seats and the pews and the chairs, and what we recognized was we don't have a lot of young people here. And a bunch of pastors, and I believe they were very sincere, set out to solve the problem. What they noticed was we have all of this insider language, right? We say words that... You have to grow up in the church to understand the words. And then we have these moments in the service that if you grew up in the church, you understand the moment. All right, now I got to stand. Now I got to sit. Now I got to kneel. Now I stand. Now I sit. Now I kneel. But if you didn't grow up in it, you feel very left out. 
And then we're singing songs that nobody's listening to on the radio. That kind of music is not something people are connecting to. And then we're listening to sermons about, let's just name it, the sermons are answering questions that nobody's really asking. And so who cares? If you're not asking the question, why would I care about the answer, right? That, uh, I, if you ask, if, if I have a question about my car um, because something broke, I want to hear your answer. But if you just start talking to me about how to fix a problem in my car and I don't have a problem in my car, I don't really care. And so they recognized this was happening in sermons. We got to fix this, they said. So what they did was they set out to fix the problems and uh, what was launched, what has come, it has come to be known as the seeker-friendly church. Have you heard this language before? Anyone? Seeker-friendly church. Okay, seeker-friendly church essentially set out to, and again, I think very sincere, they played music that was more relatable, the kind of music people listened to. They preached on subjects that people could relate to, that were relevant uh, they did everything they could to try to make the church accessible for people who didn't grow up in the church, who this was brand new. And then many churches grew really fast. Because guess what? The message itself is great, and people want to hear it. We just got to make it accessible. It grew really fast. So now what ended up happening, we got a problem. We've got a lot of people still meeting in the smaller spaces. We need to build bigger buildings, and we need to uh, hire a bigger staff. But in order to build bigger buildings and hire a bigger staff, we got to increase our budget. But now we've got a bigger building and we got a bigger staff and we got a bigger budget. So now what's the new problem? We got to keep the big crowd. As soon as we lose the big crowd, then we will then like we got to fire people. We've got like the building will feel empty. So now we got to keep the big crowd in order to keep the big staff in order to keep all because we started out trying to make this accessible. So then what ends up happening is, okay, now we've got like these different kinds of people and we can't be controversial. Whatever you do, don't be controversial because if you're controversial, then, uh, then like people are going to get upset and if people get upset, they leave and then you can't afford your staff and then you can't afford your building. So guess what is pretty controversial? The Bible. <laughs> So what ends up happening is a lot of, I mean, it's not that they didn't read Bible verses, but you really stop teaching the Bible. You do a little more self-help. Like, here's how God wants you to live. A little more prosperity. God wants you to be wealthy. Uh, trickle down a generation. We got a whole generation of young people, if you're, if you're like below 30. Uh, there's a whole generation of young people who have questions. And uh, all of the churches that, many of the churches that said, yeah, we can't be controversial, are, are refusing to answer these questions because they're sincere questions. They're important questions. Uh, what do we do about the real-world problems? What do we do about the things we feel? Um, and how, do we, how does the Bible teach us to walk through this life? And we have churches that have not allowed us to put down roots. Did you know that theologians, like all credit all credible, worth their salt theologians will agree on many things that many average Christians don't know or have never heard taught on. Okay, you guys stick with me on this because this might be shocking. Um, for instance, uh, every credible theologian, every one I can find, uh, there's some outliers, I'm sure, but every credible theologian will say that Genesis 1 was not trying to teach us science. They were not trying to teach us how old the earth was. They were not trying to tell us that the earth was six days old. Uh, they were trying to do something else. But by 
making it a science book, we've actually lost the more important question of what is Genesis 1 trying to teach us about God? Many church communities were never taught that. Um, uh, for instance, part two, uh, Noah. Noah, uh, every, again, every creditable theologian I can find will say that Noah is a flood story with all of his neighbors telling very similar flood stories, but there's some subtle differences. And if you want to understand the power of the story, they knew their neighbors were telling the same stories. It's in figuring out where does this story change? How is it different than all the neighbor's stories? You can solve that. You can understand what the, the power of this, this story is. But I don't think many people learn that in the churches because we can't become... Every creditable theologian, every mainline denomination uh, will agree there will be no rapture. Don't shoot me. Uh, the rapture is not a, it's a new idea. It's not a, it's not a biblical idea. It's not a biblical. We taught on it. Actually, I believe Hannah taught on it two years ago. Uh, worth hunting down. Um, but most Christians, unfortunately, grew up assuming this is what we all believe. Go on social media right now. You'll see every time Israel has anything happening in Israel, you'll get a bunch of rapture posts about what's like, we're all apparently going to get sucked, sucked out of here. But uh, it's not a biblical. And again, every theologian, but like we just don't talk about it because it's controversial. And how do we talk about controversial things? One of my favorite compliments that's ever been given to me I was by a seminary student who said, you know, I went to seminary and uh, we were sitting in these introduction classes and they're teaching some of this stuff. And I'm watching my peers all freak out because they had never heard this before. And um, then she said to me, she's like, I feel like we talk about that stuff every week. One of our missions here is we absolutely want to be accessible, seeker-friendly, but not at the expense of actually being intellectually engaged or intellectually honest. I think there's a generation of people who are asking questions that are worth answering or worth addressing to put down deep roots, to actually try to wrestle with the hard stuff. It's why we do what we do. It's why we talked about uh, divorce and sexual abuse and some of the things that violence and like, it's why we wrestle with the hard subjects together. I think that there's a group of people who are hungry for what the Bible actually does teach, uh, not just a soundbite. Uh, I actually think that that's probably the largest group of people right now. Um, the number one generation, uh, or the number one growing statistic amongst uh, the ch church, I guess, is a group of people that are referring to, people are referring to them as the de-churched. They will say things like, I used to go to church, but now I, don't I no longer go to church. And if you drill down, which a few Pew Research and Gallup has done, most of them will say something along the lines of the church is addressing problems or asking or giving answers that I'm, to questions I'm not asking. It's like we've lowered the bar and now we're tripping over it. Uh, or we're, but the, the failure to say things controversial has made us not say anything at all. And what I love about this particular story is Nicodemus comes with a question Later, John says, I'm going to put that in my, of all the stories of Jesus, I'm going to record that story because people need to know that it's okay to do this. And Jesus engages him. He finds the question behind the question. What are you really seeking here? What's really going on? Because there's something going on here. Let's uh, go back to the story. Verse 10. 
You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and, you, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? In other words, you teach the Bible, you teach about the miracles, but you don't actually want to follow it. Uh, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So he quotes two passages out of Daniel and Ezekiel here. Like, you know these stories. These are your stories. You teach this. And then one out of Exodus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. You're the Israel's teacher. You know the stories. What's the solution to your problem? Go back and read your own stories. Throughout the Bible, there were people who believed that they were given a name. And they thought, this is my legacy. This is my destiny. This is all I'll ever be. And throughout the Bible, you find God again and again saying, let me give you a new name. Let me breathe new hope into you. Then the verse we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Do you see what Jesus is saying? It's, kind of, it's hard, it's, it's brilliant and complicated and we don't have time to dive into it. Um, but essentially it's Nicodemus, you're the people's champion. You're the people's victory. You've put your hope in building your resume. But if you, and you're not content, you've climbed all the way up the ladder and you're still not content. If you want to find what you're looking for, you're going to have to take my name. You're going to have uh, God's salvation, God's victory, Yahshua. And then he wraps it up by saying, this is the verdict. Remember this guy sneaking around in the night. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will become exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. You see, Jesus, uh, when Jesus tells Nicodemus that he can be born again, it's in the context of a man who has got this insatiable hunger He's proven he can outthink the smartest people. He can outwork the hardest working people. He knows his Bible better than the most brilliant scholars. He sits on the Supreme Court and he feels hollow. And Jesus anticipates this. He has a question, but Jesus sees the question behind his question. And Jesus addresses the real heart issue. You know who? I've got a handful of friends who are masters at that. You, ask, you start asking questions and they immediately say, is everything okay? Like they, they read the question behind the question. There's something else going on. This isn't coming out of nowhere. Your neighbors are the same. Their neighbors are the same. Why do you go to church? It's not just, well, let me tell you why you have to go to church. It's, there's something going on. There's a question behind their question. Uh, and I would say that most people right now are hungry for people who are willing to sit with them in the question. Different Seasons of life cause us to ask different questions. Uh, different people have different questions based on what they were given. So it's normal. It's very normal. 
there is technology that we have. Um, I'm told my phone has more computer processing power than uh, the space shuttle that landed on the moon. I have a billion songs in my pocket at every given moment. Pretty awesome. Uh, I have an AI assistant. I, I have a couple now. Um, I've got a chat GPT AI assistant, and then I got, I can't say her name out loud because she wakes up, but it starts with an S and it ends with an eerie. Um, I, I've got multiple AI assistants, and I right now can ask any question of those AI assistants, and I can find information that 30 years ago you had to go to the library and find the librarian or the little drawer and find a bunch of books to find the answers. It's instantaneous. And there are questions that our technology cannot answer. Questions about meaning, about purpose, about significance, about worth. Jesus says the Spirit of God's like wind. It's kind of like being born. Like these moments of mystery where our job as people of faith isn't to conquer the mystery, it's to join in and help them discover a Jesus who is worthy of our trust. Uh, when the Bible talks about eternal life, we often think of eternal life as this. Uh, and it is. It's eternally long life. That's, that's true. But eternal life in the biblical mindset is not just eternally long, it's also eternally deep. And I think right now we have a world that's skipping along the surface who are looking for people who have put down deep roots who can actually draw from the source. This is our fundamental commitment. This is why we start with Jesus. This is what it means to be his student or his disciple, to be people who are so passionate about learning, about growth, about finding new ways to encounter this beautiful God that when our neighbors see us, they have the questions they'll ask us. Lord, I thank you for a church who's willing to, uh, every single week, go into the scriptures and wrestle together. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we wrestle, we would be reminded that, uh, Lord, as we wrestle with the text, as we wrestle with each other over what does this mean, how do we think about this, uh, Lord, would you remind us as uh, you, you do in the life of Jacob, Lord, that as we wrestle, we wrestle with you. Uh, Lord, would you remind us that uh, it is in our questions that we draw closer to you? Give us grace for where we learn new things and discover we were wrong. Uh, Lord, help us to be okay admitting that. Lord, give us grace uh, in the moments where we discover we have used our words to hurt. Uh, and then, Lord, I pray that you would give us an insatiable hunger for you. Uh, Lord, help us to discover that it's your name, not just information about your name, but, Lord, it's your name and trusting your name uh, that opens up all of life, eternally long and eternally deep. Uh, Jesus, we pray all of this in your name. And everybody said? As always, we hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. 
And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.